Turn, if you would, to the 11th chapter of the, of the book of Proverbs. We started the 11th chapter last week, and we made it through three whole verses. I think last week I let you in on my little secret. Uh, this is lesson 22. Lesson 31 is going to be about Proverbs 31. You say, how are we going to get there? It's real easy. You just start flipping pages. <laughs> we'll start reading in verse 1 and uh, read through the verses we did last week, and we'll pick up in verse 4. The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. And picking up in verse 4 today, Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. We're going to talk for a few minutes about wealth and what it does for you and what it doesn't do for you. If you look back to chapter 10, verse 15, you'll remember the discussion we had about the verse that says, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. And at that time, we discussed some of the benefits of having wealth. Wealth helps us deal with certain problems in life. And being poor... Uh, amplifies certain problems in life. If you remember the, the line from Fiddler on the Roof where Tevier is praying or discussing or arguing with God, and he says, I realize it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. <laughs> having wealth, having assets, having resources, be they financial, be they spiritual, be they relational, helps you in difficult times. It is good to have wealth, but it carries its own set of problems. Back to chapter th uh, 11, verse 4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. There is coming a time, i.e. the day of wrath, there is coming a time when all the money in the world is going to do you no good. You may live your life in a huge amount of wealth, and I might throw in at this point, you do know by the standards of the world, by the standards of history, most of us are very wealthy. We don't feel like we're wealthy, because we have bills to pay, we have obligations, we have things we need to obtain. We don't feel like we're wealthy, but by the standards of history, by the standards of the world, most of us, not all of us, most of us are fairly well off. I've used the illustration in here before, taken from the book about um, raising... Um, self-reliant children in a self-indulgent world. And he gives the illustration. Here are three questions. Do you have more than one cha uh, change of clothes? Do you have access to some mode of transportation? A car, a bicycle, 
anything. Do you have a choice about what you eat for dinner? If you can answer yes to two of those three questions, you are wealthy by the standards of the world. Mm. Kind of interesting. Our wealth can help us deal with certain problems in life. But it can also produce in us a sense of of non-dependency, a belief that we can control things, that we are in charge, that we can ultimately save ourselves. And what the proverb is telling us, that in this day of wrath, In this day of wrath, all the money in the world will do you no good. When it comes to judgment, when it comes to God looking at the condition of your heart, all the money in the world that you relied on, that you put your trust in, that you depended on, will do you no good. There comes a time when money will not be the scorecard. Jump, if you will, to verse 16, which is one of my favorite Proverbs, by the way. I quote this one all the time. A kind-hearted woman gains respect. We can talk about that in just a moment. But ruthless men gain only wealth. Wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. But ruthless men gain only wealth. What is the picture? There are unrighteous people who gain lots of wealth. And the average American today would be quite content with that. Show me how to get the money, and I would be happy, they think. But the operative word there is only. That's all they get. It is the fact that we live in an exceptionally materialistic age where we think that's enough. If I have money, if I have wealth, then everything else gets taken care of. That's what we believe. Trust me. There are lots of days of the week that I could get into that, right? I've got kids in college. I've got kids that want to do things. I've got huge demands, and I keep thinking, you know, a little wealth, that is all I need to take care of fill in the blank. Unrighteous people can get material wealth. Do we have any argument with that? You can read the newspaper. You can read, you know, Forbes' list of the 500 richest people in the world. I'm sure some of them are exceptionally righteous people. And if statistics are correct, some of them aren't. Are they any worse than the general public? No. They probably look a whole lot like the general public as far as morality. That is not the issue. The issue is the ruthless man gets only wealth. We don't think that's fair. We think that that too should be taken from them. 
But that is because we are blinded and we think wealth is the ultimate scorecard. Back to verse 4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. Once again, there will come a day when money will not be the criteria. Do we really believe that? Or do we really believe what the bumper sticker says, that he who dies with the most toys wins? Have you ever seen that bumper sticker? There are several versions of it around. I haven't seen it in years. In the day of wrath, in the day of judgment, do we believe what Christ and what the apostles in the New Testament tell us that there will be a day of judgment, there will be a day of accountability, and when you get to heaven, God is not going to ask you how many digits there are in your bank account. Now, he is going to ask you, what did you do with that money that I put in your bank account? That is going to be a criteria, because that is a sign of, are you faithful or are you not? But the number of zeros, the number of significant digits, is not the criteria in the day of judgment. The book of Proverbs is full of discussions about money and about wealth. And it doesn't view it as a bad thing. But if it builds a sense that we can do it all on our own, we are in for a great awakening. Unfortunately, it'll be too late when we get there. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Here we have a contrast, really not between wickedness and righteousness, but between a dependency on wealth and righteousness. Righteousness is going to be the criteria. So what in the world is righteousness? Come on, you ought to know this. Pardon? Anybody in Christ? It's been imputed to me. Being right with God. Y'all are talking about how you get there. There's the answer. Righteousness ultimately is right standing before God. God, let's make up a metaphor. God is in that room next door, okay? This is a picture. I'll let you in on a secret. He's in this room too. But for right now, let's say he is in that room next door. The scripture tells us that sin cannot enter the presence of God. So, in order to walk around and go in that room where God is, you have to be righteous. You have to be right with God. You have to be holy. Holy, set apart for God's purposes and that's what it takes to walk into the presence of God 
So, those of you who have never sinned in your life, hop up and y'all can go into the other room. Come on. Go ahead. <laughs> you're, you're getting ahead of me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I always remember when I was a youngster, we were rehearsing for our Christmas pageant, which is was basically, you know, the life of Christ and we have the woman caught in the act of adultery, and Jesus says, you know, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And all the Pharisees started throwing stones. <laughs> this was in rehearsal. <laughs> the reality is, if you don't believe it, you can jump over to Romans chapter 3. There is none who does what is right. There is none who seeks God. There is no one, no one, no one who can walk from here into that other room if God was present in there and expect to live because we are not righteous. So how do we become righteous? Well, we work at it real hard. If you look at religions throughout history. You pick your religion, whichever one you want. I dare say any of them. Just pick one. Each of them has a definition of what it means to be righteous. Some set of criteria, some set of things that have to be done in order for you to enter the presence of a holy God if that particular religion has a God in the first place. If you want to practice Islam, there is the seven things you're supposed to do. Buddhism has its seven-fold path of wisdom or whatever it is, or is it five? I lose track of the numbers. Every Religion, every denomination, every, every, everything has a discussion of what it is you have to do to be righteous. I might add, Judaism, where we are in the book of Proverbs, has such a list. Do these things and you will live. Go back to Exodus, Leviticus, read what it takes for them to be righteous before God. And I will say this, okay? I believe that God was making a fair bargain with them. If they did it, they would be right before God. I don't think God was making stuff up, you know, of your own accord, fly a hundred yards without touching the ground. Well, we can't do that. Then you're hosed. He was telling them things that physically they were capable of doing. Keep these commandments. But spiritually they were lost creatures. And what we see in the book of Hebrews is that Christ came as a better way 
He fulfilled that law. He did everything that was required of that law. He did it all. And then in Romans 1, we see that there is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It is the righteousness of Christ given to us, imputed to us. If that's true, go ahead. Sort of. Uh-huh. Okay, sort of. <laughs> okay, that's... Okay, didn't, wasn't there the forgiveness of sins? Mm, sort of. <laughs> His question was, and it's a correct observation, didn't God institute a sacrificial system to deal with the consequences of their sin? And the answer that I gave, the smart aleck answer that I gave, was sort of. The answer is obviously yes. That's what I was alluding to earlier. To me, it was a fair bargain. God was saying, you do these things, you offer these sacrifices, and I will forgive your sins. There's a problem with all of this. You get to the time of the prophets, and they're very adamant. God speaks and says, I don't want your lousy sacrifices. Why does he say that when he was the one that instituted them? Because it never was the sacrifice. It was the condition of the heart that offered the sacrifice. If, and I do believe this, if you were in the Old Testament and if you offered your sacrifice with a genuine repentant heart, I believe it was efficacious. It was effective at dealing with the sin. I really do. I think God set up an honest bargain with them. But if you think, if you think that your heart can be anywhere in the world chasing this and that and the other, and all it takes is slitting some poor animal's throat and life will be okay, God says, I don't want anything to do with that because your heart is in the wrong place go ahead yeah (laughs) he gave us a chance it didn't work But it's cheating because God knew before he gave us the chance. That's my word. Let's look at what this is doing for us. We're way off the book of Proverbs. It's doing a couple of things. One, as Mike pointed out, it is pointing us at Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
when we get over into the book of Hebrews and we see that Christ is the perfect sacrifice because he was blameless, he was holy, he had done it all. How would we as, a, as humanity know what a sacrifice was if God over here had not given us a picture? Starting in the Garden of Eden when he slaughtered the animals to make clothing, a covering for Adam and Eve, up until the sacrifice of Christ, who is the final sacrifice. So the first thing is, it provided us a picture, a picture of what was needed to take care of our sin. Secondly, it convinced you and me and all of humanity, you can't do it. And I might add, humanity doesn't believe that. Learn, we couldn't do it. Now, I will contradict that a little bit. Just a little bit. I do believe that there were righteous people in the nation of Israel who offered the sacrifice righteously and received forgiveness of their sin because they were doing it with the heart that God expected. But that was not the norm. Okay? He did it to show us what the sacrifice meant, and he did it to show us that we needed a more perfect sacrifice, which was Jesus Christ. That's what we needed. Back to the observation over here. I said, sort of. There's this huge, huge problem. Go read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and it tells you this. If you sin against your brother accidentally, then go offer a sacrifice and I will forgive your sin. I have sinned against people accidentally. I really have. You know, whether it's lashing out of anger when I really didn't want to, you know, it just kind of, it just hits you. But you know what? I have sinned on purpose. I have sinned willfully, volitionally, with malice of forethought. I have jumped into it. And you know what the Old Testament promises me for that? Nothing. Nothing. I am doomed. What it tells us, what the sacrificial system tells us, is we need a righteousness that is alien to ourselves. We need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. That are in heaven today, mm-hmm. if they're in heaven, mm-hmm. um, their sins were nailed to the cross when Christ died. Mm-hmm. Christ died for their sins too. Mm-hmm. And they were in Abraham's bosom, and then when Christ rose again, then they were allowed to actually enter paradise. Mm-hmm.
<laughs> Go ahead, Larry. They Everybody that I know of. And it, I mean, it was it was their faith in God, and then that was like until Christ came, and then suddenly Christ sacrifice became effective for them. Yes. Yes. What Mike is alluding to is in the book of Romans, when Paul is presenting this idea of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ given to us, the illustration he uses is the life of Abraham, where he says, back to whichever chapter in Genesis it is, where Abraham believed, and that belief was put into his account as righteousness, credited to. It is an accounting term. I am taking it and putting it on the ledger. You are righteous because of your belief, because of Abraham's belief that the word of God would be fulfilled. When we deal, I'm getting back to you in just a moment, when we deal with what our church refers to as the different dispensations, each dispensation has some obligation that God has put upon humanity. And God will honor those who fulfill that obligation. But ultimately, what brings forgiveness of sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, there are those who say, well, when uh, that guy offered the sacrifice, slit the throat of the lamb, he, in his mind, in faith, had to look forward to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, that may be great. I think it's expecting a lot of him that he would look forward to see that. But he did have to have faith in God, and God knew what was coming forward. Whether he did or not, he trusted God and that trust was credited to him as righteousness. And once again, if I, with no faith in God, no repentance to God, pull the lamb out, slit its throat and think, therefore I'm forgiven, God says that sacrifice is repugnant to me. Quit doing it. And the nation of Israel had gotten to that point where they thought the mere ritual of slitting throats somehow made them right before God. And God says, I don't want anything to do with that. So the answer is God makes, places requirements 
on us in each dispensation. Ultimately, what saves us is the blood of Jesus Christ in whatever dispensation. But I can be saved if I do that which God requires. But throughout history, what the dispensations have shown us is that we can't do it on our own. Not because the list is wrong. That's what we see in Romans chapter 2 and 3. Does this mean that the law is bad? No, the law is holy. The law is perfect. The law is the will of God. There's no problem with the law. There's a problem with me. Go ahead, Wally. He is. That's exactly what he's doing. The Pope, I mean, let's, let's be kind and, and try to present Catholic teaching as it really is. The Pope is the vicar of Christ. The Pope holds the keys to forgiveness. And he press, passes these down to the clergy, the priesthood, and when that priest speaks forgiveness to you, it is Christ speaking forgiveness to you. Well, no. They know that it's the blood of Jesus that forgives the sin. It's just it needs to be spoken to you that it has been forgiven. I mean, I'm in, I'm in total agreement with you, by the way, but I do want to present what they believe. I mean, I remember being in, uh, I was actually a friend of mine who was a Catholic, got married, and I was an usher in the, the, at the wedding, and, you know, this elderly lady comes in late, and she goes, oh, you know, I was having all these difficulties, and I prayed to Mary that I would get here on time. And I'm going, that's fine, but why don't you just pray to Jesus? Oh, that's exactly what it is. But I might add, what is necessary, what is necessary for that priest to give you absolution? You have to confess. That's just half of it, though. You have to repent. You have to repent. Or a priest that's worth his salt will say sorry. Once again, it's not just the slitting the throats and I don't care about the condition of your heart. Y'all know who Father Brown is? He's a detective invented by uh, G.K. Chesterton. And uh, he's a priest. He's an Anglican priest and he solves mysteries. Great stories. But in one of them, this woman comes to him, wants to him to hear her confession. She's been having an affair. And he says, okay. Do you repent? And she goes, no. I mean, her husband was a louse, and she, and he, and he goes, well, I'll pray for you. 
but I cannot offer you absolution, forgiveness, because you are not repentant. We have 10 minutes left, and I haven't got to my first point yet. (laughs) Because here it is. We believe, we believe that is the righteousness of Christ given to us that makes us right with God. I can walk out of here and into the room next door if God were in there and enter his presence, not, 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 not because of the fact that I'm better than you are. Because trust me, I'm not. I can walk out of this room and enter the presence of God because I have the righteousness of Christ covering me. And that's what death is, by the way. It's leaving this room and it's walking into that room. That's all it is. Now, all of those of us in this room will cry when you walk into that room. Trust me, you're not going to be crying (laughs) if you walk into that room and you have the righteousness of Christ. That's what death is. Having said all of that, God does give us instructions on how we are to live our lives. That in the Christian world is known as sanctification, taking the righteousness that has been given to us and working it out in everyday life. The book of Proverbs is either standing on this side of salvation, trying to work yourself to death to get in, or for the Christian, it's standing on this side of salvation and saying, how can I live my life for the glory of God? We are to be righteous in our everyday life to reflect the righteousness that Christ has imputed to us. And there are heresies out the wazoo where you take one of these and bend it out of shape. If I believe that I can keep this list of things and become righteous in and of myself, I'm doomed. Now, the reality is I might actually live a pretty good life. There are pagans who live good lives in the eyes of the rest of humanity. And I use pagan not in a derogatory term. It's just somebody who doesn't know God. There are pagans who live good lives in the eyes of human beings. You and I would like to think that all the Christians are at one end of the scale of goodness, and all the pagans are at the other end of the scale. Not necessarily the case. But they're on this side, trying to work their way that way, and ultimately they will not get there. So there's a slew of heresies on that side. On the other side, the heresy is, I've got it, 
I've got the righteousness of Christ so I can live like the devil and everything will work out. The book of Proverbs tells you if you do that, you're going to have a miserable existence. The New Testament tells us that if you attempt to do that, it should be a warning about whether the righteousness of Christ is really in your life. Does that mean I'm going to be over here and be perfect? No. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth of God is not in you. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, and will forgive us. And that is confession to God, not to the priest down the street. Both of those have to be kept in mind or we run off some cliff somewhere. And it is difficult for me as a teacher, for a pastor who stands in a pulpit and says, okay, believers, here's how you ought to live your life. Because we know that in this group right here and in the congregation, there are people who are on this side. And they hear that and think, ah, that's what I have to do or I'm not going to get in. You're not going to get in if you do the book of Proverbs. You're not going to get in if you keep whatever list you want to make up. You're not going to get in if you keep the sacraments of the Catholic Church or the Islamic list of things or the Buddhist, right? You're not going to get in if you do any of that stuff because your sin still hangs over your head. The blood of Christ forgives us of our sins. Let's look at the verse one more time. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. There will come a day when money will do you no good. Between now and then, it certainly helps. Okay? Let's not be naive. Let's not pretend there's no great honor in being poor. Okay? But, ultimately, but righteousness delivers from death. When You get to heaven when you walk from here next door and God is in the other room. He's not going to say, show me your bank account. What he's going to say is, what did you do with Jesus Christ? Now, it's one of those rhetorical questions. He knows. (laughs) He knows. You don't know. He is going to be interested in your wealth only with regard to what that wealth did to you and what you did with that wealth for the good of the world around you. God didn't give us wealth just to make us more independent of God. He gave us wealth to meet the needs of our families, our communities, our churches, and to spread the gospel. That's why God gives us wealth. In the day of wrath, wealth will do you no good, but righteousness, righteousness delivers from death. It is what allows you to walk from this room to the next room 
and enter the presence of God. Unless the Lord comes back, and that's a whole different discussion, unless the Lord comes back, every one of us, you at whatever age you are, me, my son, at whatever age he is, I know how it is. At whatever age you are, at some point in your life, you're going to walk from this room to that room. And the rest of us will sit in here and we'll cry. We'll mourn because we'll miss you. But you'll either enter the presence of the Holy God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ or you will have lived your life relying on something else. Your money, your good looks, your friends, something else. And it will do you no good when you walk out that door next door. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us the righteousness of Christ. I pray, Lord, that each of us would take that righteousness and work it out in our lives today, tomorrow, and for all the days that you give us on this earth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.